Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of participation in times of extreme isolation. I hope you're having a great day. hope you had a great week. We are seeing tendrils of elective cases popping up next week. These are exciting days. Happy days are here again. But who needs elective cases when you have Device Nation, right? Wrong! I have an exciting interview at the end of of this little monologue with a gentleman who does this job in Alaska. I love Alaska. Took a trip there many years ago, and it really, really changed my life. So hang around for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to introduce you also to somebody that I know you've never heard of, Porky Bacar. So hold tight on that. Let's take a quick trip down memory lane. When my kids were little, I decided I wanted a playground in the backyard that was the envy of the neighborhood for no other reason than I wanted all the neighborhood kids coming to my house, not vice versa, so I could keep an eye on things. So I built swing sets, seesaws, towers, everything in the world you could think of, surrounded the whole thing with timbers, and then I called in a wood chip company, and they dumped pretty much a metric ton of wood chips in my driveway. I figured that would be a nice, safe landing in case somebody decided to take a swan dive off the swing set. So as I stared at this pile, my ever-vigilant practical joker took over. And, and I'm a victim in that area. I got this from my dad. He was always pulling pranks, moving outhouses on people in the middle of the night, taking people's Jeeps apart, and then they would reassemble it on farmers' roofs. Just crazy stuff. So I looked at that wood chip pile, and I thought, I know what to do. I had my wife bury me in it, which was no fun, let me tell you. But I was committed. I was committed to this joke. She brought the kids out into the driveway and said, hey, did y'all see something move? And they started staring at the wood pile. And of course, I made it move a little bit more, started making some noises. And then just when they were totally fixated on that wood pile, I came out of that thing like this creature from the Black Lagoon screaming and yelling. Of course, they started screaming and yelling, and then they realized it was me. We all had a great laugh. I hope they're not in therapy over that to this day, but it was a good a good time. Now, as funny as I thought that joke was to my family, when I heard about Porky Bacar, I realized there is a whole nother level of practical jokes and commitment to such so April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1974, Porky Bacar saw Mount Edgecombe and saw an opportunity. It's a dormant volcano right off the coast of Sitka, Alaska. He got a few friends, a helicopter, 70 tires, kerosene, and an idea. Took it all out there, set the tires on fire. He called the FAA to let them know about it, called the local police department to let them know about it. He even took his feet and stomped in April Fools in the snow in the volcano cone. The course, the locals saw the black smoke. Everybody started panicking. They started lighting up the phones. Everybody thought it was hilarious when they finally found out, well, most everybody thought it was hilarious when they found out what it was, but he had forgotten to tell one person. 
he forgot to tell one organization, and that was the Coast Guard. So they sent a chopper out there to find out what was going on. And, of course, they saw April Fool's written in the snow. They had a good laugh about it as well. Now, there were some on the island that never forgave him for it because he continued to run a business there, which was kind of funny. That's the kind of joke you pull on your way out, right? But Alaska Airlines actually included this prank as an ad campaign they did for one of Alaska's greatest brags, and he is in the hoaxes.org as one of the top three jokes, April Fool's jokes of all time. Now, to me, the punchline to this whole story was what happened many years later, I think it was 1980, don't hold me to that, but when Mount St. Helens went off, he got a letter from the, in the mail from an attorney from Denver, and it had a picture of Mount St. Helens erupting, and it read, this time, you little bastard, you've gone too far. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. So that is commitment, right? I went for weeks pulling wood chips out of my ears. It would be the weirdest thing. I would be at dinner, and I'd feel something in there, and then I would scratch my ear, and there was another wood chip, and coughing and sneezing wood chips. But you know what? It was worth it because I was committed. Not nearly as committed as taking 70 tires in the cone of a dormant volcano, but you get the picture here, right? It's all about commitment. Now, one of the things that I know about Alaska is that it is a climate of extremes. When I was there, it was 11 o'clock at night and still light. They have extreme light, extreme dark, extreme summers, extreme winters, extreme cold, extreme warmth. It gets beautiful there in the summer, nice and toasty. They have extreme beauty, extreme wildlife, extreme everything. But that's what attracts so many people to it is those extremes. And the more I think about it, I think that this job is just like Alaska. Medical device is Alaska. It's extremes, extreme highs, extreme lows, extreme knowledge you have to have, extreme relationship skills you have to have, extreme stress, extreme successes. I could just go on and on. It's just like that. And that's what draws so many of us to it. It's the extreme aspect of it. But if you're committed to it, it is absolutely worth it. You know, you, you're committed to that practical joke. And yeah, you're coughing up wood chips for two weeks, but it's worth it. In medical advice, the, those who are committed to this thing, we thrive on these highs and lows. We thrive on it. The lows we learn from, the highs we know how to modulate it and know that it's not a place where we can live, right? Some of the worst years I ever had in this business were right after a president's club, up down, up, down. But I'm committed. We're going to get through this. We're going to push through because most of the people that listen, I think all the people that listen to this podcast, you're really committed to this thing. And you can handle the extremes. And in fact, that's what got you into this business is a lot of that very thing. So let's listen to Brian talk about what it's like to do an extreme job in an extreme area. It's a double whammy. It's a double feature. Welcome to the show, Brian. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. Brian, I've been wanting to talk to somebody from Alaska forever. Back when we used to have destination meetings in orthopedics, uh, there would always be these cool places to take your surgeons to. And this particular year was Sitka. Got mm -hmm. to go there with a surgeon friend of mine, and I absolutely fell in love with Alaska. And ever since then, I've been a 
faithful watcher of Alaska State Troopers, Alaska PD, and I was even more interested in talking to you now that I have found out you're also from Hawaii. So yeah, walk me through how you got from Hawaii to Alaska and how you got into this business. I basically grew up in Southern California, decided that Hawaii was a place that I I needed to move to. I grew up surfing, so I figured Hawaii was going to be a good, a good fit for me. And um, I went out to Hawaii uh, working for uh, Kaiser Hospital, and uh, I was sort of the lead ortho guy there. And uh, the Zimmer rep at the time, he kept trying to coerce me to come over and and work for Zimmer. And uh, one day, I, he made me an, an offer I couldn't refuse. I met uh, the distributor up here in 2001, and uh, that was at the the national sales meeting in Las Vegas, where Norman Schwarzkopf was our uh, guest speaker. Very inspiring time back then. It was like right after uh, 9/11. Very much so. Yeah. Um, so I was with Zimmer for for quite a while, and then uh, and then in 2000, what 12 or 13, I met the the guys with biomet actually I, I knew several of the local reps in hawaii of course but um they had some of their their regional guys came out for one of our local meetings in hawaii and and they made me an offer to come over to biomet and so i thought about it and then i uh i jumped ship and came over to uh to biomet and uh shortly after that zimmer bought biomet and so then i was like shoot i'm going to be back where I started. I didn't know if that was going to be a good thing or a bad thing, but then we started doing a lot of these crossover meetings. And then, uh, I would run into our, uh, Alaska Zimmer distributor at those meetings and his sales manager. And so we chatted and, uh, I just basically mentioned only half joking that, you know, if you have a job for me in Alaska, let me know. And, um, and then in 2015, I, uh, I was eloping. Uh, my girlfriend and I decided we were going to go and get married over in Maui. Just kind of didn't know what the landscape was going to look like, but we knew that we wanted to get married. And so when we were in the airport, I got a call from the distributor up here in Alaska and, and he asked what I was up to. And I said, I was, he, he was just calling to shoot the bull. And I told him I was eloping and he asked what I was doing for a honeymoon. And, uh, at that time, I wasn't sure what the landscape was going to look like afterwards, uh, you know, when once the uh, dust settled from the merger. And so he asked me if I wanted to take a honeymoon up to Alaska. And so because he and I had previously spoken and I you know, mentioned to him uh, that I'd be willing to move up to Alaska. So I thought maybe there was a job offer attached to this honeymoon trip that we were being offered so we came up here and uh it just happened to be you know beautiful when we were here and uh my wife now uh seemed to like it a lot you know i was kind of a little concerned being that she's a hawaii hawaii girl and sure enough he offered me a job and we discussed it judy and i discussed it and uh that was it we said yeah let's do it and uh we decided to get rid of everything we had in Hawaii and move to Alaska. And we still have family there and everything. And we made Alaska our, our new lifestyle. It was kind of, it was kind of good for us because, 
you know, you just get married with somebody and you want to start your life together. And there's no distractions up here in Alaska other than, you know, the weather and the, 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 the environment really. And so it was kind of neat to explore it all uh, with her and everything was just kind of exciting, you know? Thanks to the Collagraft sales uh, promotion that we had many years ago, I got to go to Hawaii twice. Absolutely loved it. And I'll never forget sitting out in a, a valley having breakfast with my wife. And we both looked at each other and realized it was a complete absence of weather in the sense that you couldn't feel anything. Any humidity, no heat, no cold. It was just that absolute perfect temperature. And when I think of Alaska, I'm just thinking that that probably never happens. The transition weather-wise was okay for your wife, huh? You know, um, she really enjoyed the, the the cold a lot more than I thought she. I mean, we'll we'll sit around on our on our deck on a beautiful sunny day like today, and it's like 32 degrees out. That's probably a little bit cold for her, you know, to go just to sit out and and enjoy the outside, but. Um, She's pretty resilient. Uh, Hawaii was, I mean, that's sun and sand. I mean, that's beautiful. We love, we love Hawaii. Um, but still, there's something special about Alaska, you know, having the, having the four seasons and, you know, going through fall and the, the different kinds of beauty that we didn't always see in, in Hawaii. Do you miss surfing? Um, you know, so I, I surfed before, before I got to Hawaii and then when I got to Hawaii, once I started becoming a rep, that really slowed down a lot for me. You know, when you first start out as a, as a rep, you know, you're basically going through a fellowship yourself. You're going through fellowship and, and sports and trauma. Everybody cuts their, their teeth on trauma for the most part. And then, uh, and, uh, you know, reconstruction and, and all the biologic stuff that you have to learn with that and, learning anatomy and, and medical terminology. And by the, by the time I felt comfortable enough, it's like, I was rarely going to the beach anymore. I, I spent 60 to 80 hours in the operating room. I felt like, and when I wasn't in the operating room, I was always, uh, I was always, um, trying to learn more. Um, so I guess I don't miss it that much. Uh, I enjoy going out and jumping in the water and paddling around a little bit, but I just don't didn't surf as much by the time I left as when I first got there. And I was there for 20 years. So slowly over the years, I, I, I kind of pulled back from surfing. Uh, but when I came to Alaska, I took up uh, skiing and snowboarding and cross country and fat tire biking and fishing and hunting. And yeah, I'm having a great time up here now. When I hit a golf ball in under 30-degree weather, I might as well be trying to drive a brick. That's what it feels like when my club makes contact with a ball. What is it like moving metal trays around when it's 20, 30, 40 below? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, no, we have a great, a great group of uh, warehouse guys up here. The distributor really invested in his business up here. So we have guys that move a lot of the stuff for us. But I tell you what. Uh, you know, if you're on call and you got to pick stuff up on the weekends and move it around, it's, it's, it's a little more difficult. I mean, the trays do feel a little bit harder and, uh, and heavier and colder. And, and the thing is up here in Alaska, you know, you get so much snow and ice 
And of course they treat all this snow and ice with, uh, with gravel instead of salt. So you know, the, all the parking lots are uh, just, I mean, it's, it might as well be dirt roads that you're trying to uh, instruments over. That's more challenging than the weight and the, the cold of the, the metal trays and the totes. But um, yeah, I mean, you get your, your hand truck stuck on one of those rocks and next thing you know, you have, eight trays are trying to fall on the ground in the middle of a parking lot. That's not really fun. Tell me about the darkness aspect of it. So in the winter, how much light do you get and, and how tough is it dealing, dealing with the uh, most of the day, not having any sun at all in the middle of winter? Uh, it's, we get about maybe four hours of daylight and it's not real solid sun over your head daylight. It's, sun low on the horizon everything has that kind of chill in the air um the darkness just makes it seem colder than it probably is but i mean it does it it does get cold and you know for for me in the the winter time it's not really a, that big a deal um i mean i get up in the morning and i go to work when it's dark and i and i get done and it's dark and uh, i mean I don't think it really matters if you're working 12 hours a day, but you know, um, my wife, when she's, she's at home and it's only four hours of, uh, of daylight, I was kind of worried about her. She seems to actually to really enjoy it and the, the peacefulness of it. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's different, but then conversely in the, in the summertime, it just feels like the sun does set and the sun does set. It's not really dark. So, guess there's a trade-off when i was up there uh, that's when uh, that light pattern was going on and i would imagine you come home from work and you're just ready to keep going until two in the morning if you're not careful right yeah and uh it, it it's it, in the summertime it's it's interesting because uh i think i mentioned this before that um you know fishing and hunting so regulated up here uh, every, there's there's certain limits but they call side runs where you, you you can go fishing in one of the rivers during salmon run and you can catch two fish a day but what what guys will do they'll come up and they'll they'll, they'll go fishing at night and they'll catch their limit they'll catch two salmon and then uh at midnight uh they'll throw their poles in the water again catch two more and that counts as their limit for the next day and then they'll come home shower and go to work that's a suicide run there but um it, it's interesting and the, the summertime is just it's just different from places everywhere else in the u.s like even hawaii and yeah i was talking about this with my wife we really enjoy all this the the barbecues and stuff in the summertime but the one thing it was that we always liked in in hawaii everybody's um gosh they're addicted to their um their fireworks and uh in fourth of july it's just it's spectacular my uh New Year's Eve and and Fourth of July for that matter, but Fourth of July it's just this fantastic uh, display of illegal aerials. You don't get any of that over here in the summertime. You can't you can't see it? It's kind of a waste of money to pop fireworks in the in July over here in Alaska. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Let's talk about being a scrub tech and then coming on board as a rep. I've seen that work. I've seen some challenges. I've seen some real strengths from people that have done that. Uh, give me your perspective. Yeah. So I was scrub tech, uh, 
you know, my uh, early career when I when I was in California and and when I moved to Hawaii in '96, and I was scrub tech out in Hawaii for about five and a half years. Um, as a brand new rep, it, I found it to be a challenge uh, coming from being a scrub tech, which is a, a challenge and, and not a challenge. I I actually had surgeons that were really supportive and wanted me to become a rep because I was very thorough as a, as a scrub tech, but, you know, dealing with some of the other physicians and maybe some of the other, um, techs and nurses, they still saw me as a, as a scrub tech, not somebody that, uh, that they would use as a resource. But, um, the good thing is, is, uh, the facility that I worked at, I was a lead ortho guy. So people always already went to me for, uh, as a resource. Um, but they didn't kind of, they didn't take me as serious as I was probably taking myself. Um, but over the years, uh, going to different accounts and, and learning more, uh, and having new surgeons, you know, guys, guys leave and retire and new guys come on, you know, into communities and, they didn't know me as a scrub tech. They just knew me as a rep and, uh, and they have sort of, uh, helped me create a, my own little persona as a, as a, as a orthopedic rep. And that it's actually, uh, um, it's actually worked out pretty well. When I moved to Alaska, I was much better equipped moving to Alaska, moving to another environment. I think that's true for any, any rep when you, you go from one facility, when you're learning early in your career, and then you go to another area or another account or, and you start visiting with new um, customers, they start taking you more seriously because they didn't know you through your learning stages and, and learning can be kind of um, challenging for, for new reps, for sure. The new boot always steps in something. <laughs> Absolutely does. And it's, and sometimes it takes a little while to get that thing clean again, you know? <laughs> yes, it does. Sometimes yeah. never. Sometimes yeah, exactly. never. Um, yeah. yeah. I've, I've talked to a lot of reps over the years that transitioned later in life and experienced the same thing. When, when you switch and you start new, it's a do-over. All that stuff gets washed away, and you get a chance to kind of reinvent yourself. And uh, it's usually been a net positive with the people that I've talked to. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is. I, I realize one of the challenges I would have, you said the Alaska windshield is a windshield that is cracked from the, oh, yeah. the, the gravel hitting it. And I'm so neurotic about the outside of my car and the armor all and everything's got to be perfect. And uh, that yeah. would just drive me nuts. Cause, uh, oh, yeah. Forget about it. You don't want to be here if that's a, if you if you put that much value on your vehicle you're driving. <laughs> we're, we're actually talking about uh, getting a new vehicle this year. Uh, but the end of the day, man, I've got a 2004 Dodge 1500. The grill is completely chipped. Everything, all the paint in the front of the vehicle is chipped up. I got a, a crack in the windshield. I bought it with a crack in the windshield and I'm never going to change that. Nobody would expect you to change it because it's just going to crack again. My, we got a, we got a, a, a new uh, Jeep when we got here and it's got a cracked windshield. And like every year we get another chip in it. Yeah. It's uh, they, they put all that gravel on the, on the roads and in the parking lots and your, these cars go over it. They pick up that rock and then the, most opportune time of going down the road, all of a sudden you get 
get a little a little you know piece of gravel fly up at 60 mile an hour and put a big old spider mark in the front of your uh, your windshield and there's and you know there's there's nothing you can do about it you can get it fixed usually it's going to cost you $500 and it's going to just get cracked within the next 6 months you sent me a picture of the guy in Sitka back in 1974 who took 75 <laughs> tires up to the cone of that dormant volcano, set it on fire, yeah. and everybody thought the volcano was erupting and totally yeah. panicked. And uh, I just love that story because uh, your meme that you sent is so true. I mean, that's commitment to yeah, a pr- to an April Fool's joke. Total commitment. That was yeah, yeah. That was that's that was pretty funny. I don't know who sent me that, but I thought that was just that was classic. It was definitely something that I need to share with somebody who's going to ask questions about Alaska. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A, that was a great story. Uh, yeah. Tell me an Alaska story, man. Something that's happened to y'all there that's uniquely Alaska that makes you laugh or scared the crap out of you or something. When I was in in Hawaii, there was. Uh, at the Kapiolani Community College, they started a surgical tech program. And so um, the the lady who ran that was the wife of one of the, the orthopedic physicians. And he asked me if I could talk to her and see if I could help her out with doing some training for their scrub techs. And it turned into this year after year, I would go and I would, I would teach at the, the, uh, the community college, um, like a few days of orthopedics, total joints, trauma, hips, knees, whatever. And, um, and so every year I would go back and I would do this. And, and through the years, I, I have met a lot of surgical techs and a lot of nurses. And, um, and we started these relationships where, you know, I'd see them in the, in the hospital, in the OR departments or in the, the, you know, in the cafeteria or wherever at multiple different accounts. And I actually have even seen a couple of those former students up here in Alaska, which is kind of neat. Anyway, one of the one of the the techs became a good friend of mine, and uh, and later his wife, who was uh, uh, had got out of nursing school, became was a good friend of mine. Those two got together and they got married, and they decided when they were starting their life out together, they were going to buy one of those huge Winnebago buses, basically so big that he he could. He had a little lift in the back where he'd put his Harley Davidson and they would do these travel assignments, these local assignments across the country. And they would you know, go to California, Oregon, Washington, Montana. They even took a trip up here to Alaska. And so when he found out that I was moving to Alaska, he uh, he, he called me up and said, hey, just want you to realize what you're getting yourself into. And he kind of went through all this stuff about you know, the, the, the daylight and the sunshine and you know, all, all the different things about Alaska. But the one thing he he told me that I kind of I was I was really curious about and I learned that later that was true was he said, anytime you leave Anchorage, Alaska will try to kill you. And I thought that was funny. But anyway, uh, that that was like my segue into my story where one of my customers uh, from Maui, uh, he came up one summer. Uh, actually it was last summer and uh he myself uh one of my customers up here and his one of his buddies from california all went on his moose hunt trip and so we went moose hunting we were you know and and 
man, I tell you what, five miles outside of Anchorage, you could be in the middle of Alaska bush country and, and you, you, you wouldn't know it. But we, we went down, down the road a bit and we actually had to take horseback to get back into this little valley um, to do this little hunting trip. We weren't that far from Alaska as far as the as crow flies, but you know, you you were in the middle of nowhere at the same time. So we were uh, maybe two or three days into this uh, into our little hunt. And it, interestingly, the when you go moose hunting, uh, the bull moose get very vocal, and so we're sitting there and you can't hunt at night. You can't hunt with uh, with radios. You can't hunt with with um, flashlights or any, uh, any kind of illumination. And they're very specific. If you're going to shoot, um, a moose for harvest, it has to be specific. Like our, the rules for us, it had to be, um, an antler spread of 50 inches or wider. Uh, so, you know, hunting at night would be near impossible. You, it, you can't judge uh, how big the, the bull moose is. You can't see if it's, you know, if it's mature enough. So we'd sit there in our tents at night and we'd listen to these moose walk right by. We just happened to be set up on a game trail, um, not intentionally. Um, moose would walk by our, our and make all the, we hear, there's so many noises at night. You didn't know whether it was a bear. You didn't know whether it was a moose. You didn't know what it was, but they would just make all kinds of noises and this bear or this, sorry, this moose would be walking back and forth by our, our tent. We assumed it was one, but it might've been several and um, making all kinds of racket. And of course, you know, when you're in bear country, you're, you're awake at every single sound. So the next day we're getting ready to go hunt. And uh, two of us decided we were going to go off in one direction and me and my, uh, my buddy from Maui decided we we're going to go off the, this valley in another direction. And we're in there. We're, we're, we're in this valley and, and we decide we're going to, we're going to set up on one side of the valley and we can look right across the valley to the, the valley wall on the far side. And we are in this grass meadow so we can see what's going on above us and see if a moose possibly would pass above us in the middle of this big grassy meadow. There was a big granite boulder that we decided we were going to set our backs up against. And we had our rifles and we were sitting there eating our, our tuna fish snack packs and and looking across glassing the valley and it happened to be the first day where we had nice sunshine um you know that we were we got to sit in we had all of our gear on so it was nice and warm and beautiful and uh my buddies after we were there for a little bit he's he started dozing off he started snoring and of course you know i'm trying to glass, but I'm, you know, glass me looking across the valley with my binoculars, but he sounded so comfortable. And it, and it, I mean, I was literally being lulled to sleep by his, his, uh, his snoring. And, um, he was, he was sound asleep and I was literally, I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to get my eyes shut for just about five minutes myself. So right before I was just about to commit to uh, taking a nap, I, I decided I was going to look up on the, the, the valley wall on, on our side of the valley and just look up the meadow, see if there was anything like it was looking like it was going to pass above us a moose, hopefully. And 
And as I was turning around to settle back down into my little uh, seated position, I sort of noticed a little movement off above me on the other side of the rock. And I thought it was like a ground squirrel or something, a marmot. And so I kind of like put my weight on the rock just to peek over. And it was the biggest 650 pound grizzly bear making a beeline straight toward us. It was about at that moment, it was about 15 yards away and it was moving straight at us. And it was just the most fantastic, scary monster I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I, I immediately popped up and I had spun my rifle around on it and screamed bear. And of course, you know, the, the bear stopped and stared at me, but it wasn't, it wasn't running away. It was just looking right at me and its eyes and my eyes locked. And, uh, and when I did that, I, you know, it's, it's, it's that those few seconds are probably going to be cemented as like a, a solid hour in my mind for the rest of my life. But uh, my buddy, he kind of just got startled awake and he stood up and he had his rifle. But of course, mine's you know, pointed right at the, the bear. And then he sees where I'm looking, looks over. And then uh, that bear in that split moment just like this decided that two of us was too much. And uh, and he just booked it high-tailed straight up a 50-degree incline faster you can you could ever imagine i mean the thing was just puffing and puffing and crashing through alders and it was it was it was an amazing thing i i'm my my hands are shaking right now just just thinking about it It was it was it was it was an incredible uh day that i'll never forget about i couldn't believe an animal so big could get so close so fast and so quietly imagine he was uh smelling the tuna fish snack pack that we ate just right before that but boy i was it was it was pretty amazing i i feel like a, a big loser because the biggest wildlife threat i face every day is my neighbor's west highland terrier <laughs> and uh I, i've got nothing for that story N- nothing, yeah <laughs> nothing in response uh, yeah so two quick things before we before we head out of here uh for people that want to go to alaska uh, just it's a bucket list place you've got to go at mm-hmm. least once and if you were uh, just be our travel agent for a second if you're going to come there where would you send them just to visit i really like anchorage anchorage is um it's neat because it has everything that you can eat uh that you would need it's it it doesn't exactly have a nightlife but um it's just it's rustic uh this everything shuts down kind of early but if you're coming here to go uh, fishing or, or fishing's the big tourist uh, kind of destination for Alaska, I think, um, you would fly into Anchorage and then you probably want to go down uh, the Kenai Peninsula in this area called uh, Soldatna. And they got a ton of fishing down there. Or you go to Seward or Whittier if you want to go out on, uh, on a boat and do some um halibut fishing but i tell you what there's it's it's just such a beautiful beautiful place for me coming from hawaii i still find this place just um just as amazing it's just of course just different the sunsets are spectacular the mountains are just beautiful the 
hiking is fantastic. The wildlife is amazing. I mean, really, there's there's nowhere you can go to visit that you won't enjoy. I really enjoyed my fishing experience. Number one, pulling a, a halibut off the uh, out of the ocean was like pulling a safe. I, I heard people describe it as a is uh, like trying to pull a uh, a four foot by eight foot piece of plywood off the bottom of the ocean. I like your analogy um, better. Unfortunately for me, I've not caught one uh, nearly that big. I'm, I'm I'm just happy with uh, catching like a 33 inch halibut, and that was uh, that's still going to give you a, uh, a freezer full, you know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of freezer full, when I uh, looked at the all the salmon we caught, and I think it's 50 pounds that you can take out of the out of the state. I, I can't remember. I think that was it. And I looked like I looked at the cooler, and I said, "Well, that looks about like." 40, 50 pounds there. So I told the processor, said, look, whatever, whatever's left over in terms of pound limit, uh, just fill the cooler with uh, smoked salmon or whatever you've got, and, uh, and I'll just meet you at the airport. So they met me at the airport with a cooler with probably 15 pounds of fish by the time they cleaned it. And I had pounds of small containers of smoked salmon and a bill for yeah. $750. <laughs> um, oh yeah. That, that stuff is not cheap. I have this big <laughs> file cabinet of things that I will never do again. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was, uh, one of them. Not, not yeah. a smart move at all. I know some guys that come up here, uh, I, every year and they, they, they spend, uh, several days down, uh, fishing off of, um, uh, out of Homer and, and they, they, they'll come up and they fish for, I don't know they catch their limit every single day. So they actually, it's, it's, it's much, they can take out as much as they want of fish. They can only, they just have to make sure it's, they, they can't go over their limit for the day. And then you can take all the fish home. I mean, so they're, they're going home with, you know, several hundred pounds of, of fish between the, the few of them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's filling your freezer for sure and, uh, and sharing it with your family. I heard a word up there when I went to Alaska that I'd never heard. Sustenance, mm-hmm. people. Am I pronouncing yeah, it right? Yeah, sustenance. Yeah, sustenance. So yeah. tell me about that. Subsistence is what we're thinking. Yeah. yeah. Subsistence, um, fishing or hunting. And, um, I, and I, guess I, can, I guess I can do that, too. I know, I'm not really sure about you it. Just live off the land? That type They're of living. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. The, um, they have their uh, their subsistence hunting for caribou or or mm. whatever. I mean, there's even uh, was you know we were talking about how dark it gets at night. What's what's actually pretty common is is uh, for for moose to get hit every year. Moose get hit on the on our roads up here, and uh, so they have this list that you can get on. And if you're on the list and somebody hits a moose as you know, walking across the the highway in the middle of the night, the troopers will come. They'll they'll pull up your number off of this list and call you. and And if you're available or you can come down, you can go down to wherever it was hit and basically you butcher the the moose right then and there. Throw it in your vehicle and take it home. Problem is, is those moose are you're talking about a thousand pounds of meat or something like that, you know. And then if you don't if they call you up and and you can't 
come and get the moose. They go to the next person on the list or the next person on the list and the next person on the list. And then you move down to the bottom of the list. Which is something I've always wanted to do, but you know, it's something about getting up at three in the morning to go harvest a dead moose on the side of the road. <laughs> doesn't sound, uh, you know, that great, especially when it happens in the middle of the winter and it's usually cold and snowy and icy. And, you know, I'll, I know my wife's not going to get up to help me in the middle of the night. That's for sure. Don't call me, brother. I'll be uh, yeah, sleeping, trying to get ready for the next day. Yes. I had a yeah. nurse who would do that with deer. Uh, oh, yeah. A deer is our moose. And uh-huh. if somebody uh, hit a deer and it was fresh and she was around, she had no qualms about doing a little field dress right then oh, and sure. there. So that's, yeah, sure. That's above my yeah. pay grade. So, yeah. Oh, I wouldn't mind doing that, except for you know, I'd be more concerned if I, if, if I hit a if I hit a deer with my truck, uh, it, it might hurt my truck a little bit. If I hit a moose, it's totaling my truck. Right. They are big monsters. I mean, each each antler on on a on a big bull moose probably weighs around forty pounds. Each each antler. So we're talking about 80 pounds of antler plus the the rest of the vehicle or the, the the moose hitting your vehicle. You know, my interviews are all about hearing other people's stories, but I have to share one with you. Uh, yeah, please. I took my kids up to Lake Gaston, North Carolina, and it was uh, uh-huh. dark late at night. And we saw a couple deer on the side of the road. My kids were little. They'd never seen a deer that close before. So I stopped uh-huh. the truck. I think we were driving a, a Chevrolet Suburban at the time. And I rolled all the windows down. I said, hey, kids, look, you know, look at the deer. And, you know, we were having a little Bambi moment there. And mm-hmm. out of nowhere, the the deer got spooked and ran directly towards my truck, ran on top of my hood. Of course, being my freshly waxed hood, it, it could get no traction and sat there and did a burnout <laughs> Like a Fred Flintstone burnout for what seemed to be 10 minutes. It was probably 30 seconds. And utterly destroyed the hood until it finally got its footing and then scampered (laughs) off into the the brush. So we all just sat there in silence. And uh, (laughs) I I was thinking, okay, that was awesome. Oh, you know how many hits you would have on YouTube for something like that? That'd be great. Uh, yeah, that was before. Yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I imagine that yeah. was pre-tube. Um, yeah. See, you don't. You you don't. All you have is a story. You don't have any proof. I just have a memory <laughs> feeling like what an idiot. Yeah. Why did I have yeah. to stop the truck for some wild kingdom moment with my children? Oh, that's but, I would. That would be great. That's a great moment though. They're they're never going to forget it. That's true. I mean, we have a story, so. Stories usually cost you something. Yeah. So uh, any parting advice, uh, you know, Device Nation is all about uh, helping uh, reps at every point in their career. And you've seen the job as a tech. You've seen it as a rep. And I'm just curious, you know, if you had to, if we're all your classroom for a minute and you wanted to leave us with something that's near and dear to your heart, what would you, uh, what would you share? So I would say this would be my advice to uh, a new rep, a uh, new rep. Uh, I would say number one out of my probably five or six bullet points would, would be to be early. Cause for me, if you're not early, you're late. And the reason why would be, you need to make sure your room is set up properly. Is the C armor on the correct side? Do they have the right OR table? 
Are you doing a right or left procedure? And, uh, you know, do you have a complete set of instruments and is everything sterile? And do you have backup inventory and where is the backup inventory? Are the x-rays up? You know, if you have a good team, that's great. But, you know, scrub, scrub techs take breaks and, you know, most of the operating rooms now are using travelers or locums and, and they don't know where anything is. So if it's a familiar account, you know, you can be pretty helpful. Plus, if you're early, it gives you an insight, you know, to what the facility might need, you know, if because you're you're not just a service rep, you're a sales rep. So what supply issues that uh, they might be having, and you know, are they low on saw blades or pulse lavage, tissue grafts? Sometimes you get some insight into uh, the shortcomings of your competitors. And um, and if you're early, you can always go over the procedure with the tech and uh, and, and make sure they know what's going on and see if they're missing any instruments in their trays or, or, you know, I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in laser pointers. You know, some, some scrub techs don't like it because it, because they feel like you're treating them like a cat. Right. But right. for me, you know, I like the scrub techs. Uh, I, I like to use a laser pointer because I want the scrub tech to look good. I want the scrub tech when they're, when they're turning around and they kind of have that deer in the headlights look, they're looking for something that the surgeon asked for. I can just put my laser pointer on that instrument and tell them before the case, like if, I, if I, my laser pointer is on something, pick it up because that's what you want. And I want the surgeon at the end of the, at the end of the day or, or, you know, the end of the week to think back and reflect on their cases and, and go, you know, every time I did a case with Brian, it was, it, it went really smooth. So it does, it's not about making the Scrub tech, it, it is about making the scrub tech looking good, but you also help them to to you elevate their the way they feel about themselves, and you're not sitting there telling them what to do the whole case, right? Right. And then I, I think the uh, new reps need to realize that they're the specialist in the room, and they so they need to know their product and, and know know their options for the for the surgeons and in because the surgeons and staff are going to ask what's available and you have to have it at your fingertips or, or know it, you know, you don't want to be fumbling through Google trying to look something up because you want to be the solution and you want to be counted on. And um, I think my third bullet point would be be confident, but be humble, you know, because there's a right time to have conversations in the OR and it's not when the patient's getting wheeled into the, the gurney or, or during a timeout, you want to, pay attention to the procedure and not be on Facebook or YouTube and you, you don't want to distract the circulator or the x-ray tech or anesthesia from, from their job. And cause you have to remember that you're the guest in, in their, in their facility. Right. And, and, and four would be uh, that this isn't a nine to five job that we, we have, but it's, but it is a career and it's as, as far as a job, I mean, it's the highest tier sales position that you could, that you could hope for. And there's people that would kill for a job like ours. And, you know, we're not selling cars or TVs. We're changing people's lives. And, oh, and you, you and I talked about this before, but uh, one of the, one of the most important things for uh, for a new, a new rep is to, uh, to listen, you know, and you don't just hear, you don't want to just hear people talking to you, but, really know what are they saying and, and what are their needs and are you asking questions are you as a new rep asking the right questions do people have a habit of cutting others off when they assume they know what's going to be said 
And uh, what happens is your your potential customer stops talking to you because you know you know everything, right? And you end up just vomiting up a bunch of stuff that you think that they want to hear, and and that's that's really not what we're there for. And uh, I think uh, lastly, you want to be a part of that team that puts the patient first, and you know, um, you know put a hundred percent into what you you're doing, and then the money will come. I, I don't focus on on how much money I'm making. I, I basically, I pretty much focus on having all the solutions to everything that happens in the OR and having backup plans. And I guess those would be my, my, my advice to a new rep. That'll preach. Good yeah. stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I am going to convince my wife. Uh, we're going to go up to Anchorage in the summer yeah, and uh, hang out with you guys and go fishing until midnight. That'd be a lot of fun. Hey, that would be fun. If you do come up, definitely give me a call and, uh, and we'll we'll meet up. All right, all right, buddy. Thanks again, and uh, you be safe. Appreciate it. All right, thanks a lot, Kevin. We'll talk to you later. To Alaska and back, and not one mosquito bite. You're welcome. I love what Dr. Doss has been putting on LinkedIn about healthcare resiliency. All right, so hang with me just a second. I want to tie this thing up. Resilience, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. That's good stuff, right? We want to be resilient, especially in light of what's going on. So where does resilience come from? Well, I believe it is a huge function of commitment. Whether you're committed to a practical joke or your marriage, to your relationships, to your job, I could go on and on and on. Your level of commitment, which is a choice that we all make, directly reflects on your resilience. If you're committed to something, you're in, and you're going to be able to spring back into shape and to recover quickly from the difficulties inherent in that activity, especially extreme activities. This job is extreme. We are walking through some extreme times right now. We need extreme resilience, and for that, we need extreme commitment. So let's all think about that this week and look for that. How can we up our game in terms of commitment to what's in front of us that we need to do this week? I hope you all have an awesome, awesome time of it this week. Hope some cases start coming online for you again. And as always, be strong, be smart, be positive, and especially be safe. Mm -hmm.